No one likes big burly dive watches more than me. You know, it's something I like. I routinely wear large dive watches I have for a long time. So I'm like you. I'm definitely the type of person that looks at this and is like, that's pretty cool. I'd wear that. You know, it's a lot of bragging rights. Do you want to have the biggest and baddest? Oh, you only have the 500 meter water resistant planet ocean? Pfft, you know, what's wrong with you? You didn't want to spend the extra 5,000 bucks? It really doesn't come down to practical. It's, this is an emotional item. There's a lot of stories about engineering. This imagination of diving down deep. This week on a blog to watch weekly with Rick and Ariel, we go ultra deep with the new Omega Seamaster Planet Oceans. We go as deep as most humans would ever consider going with the new Aquaterra range, also from Omega. We travel to the deep end of the pool with the new Speedmaster 57 range, which is, guess what, also from Omega. And as if three releases weren't enough, Omega finally dare us to find out if there's any water on the moon with two new Moonshine Gold Speedmaster professionals. But other brands do get a look in with the review of the Christopher Ward C63 Colchester and the Frederic Constant Slimline Monolithic. Enjoy the show! Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. For the first time since we started doing these, myself and Ariel are in vaguely the same time zone, although we did have a bit of an error despite the fact that we are both in vaguely the same time zone, we still managed to get confused about what time we were actually recording. If Vaguely the same. Vaguely the same. If only somebody made a watch that could have like the ability to tell you two time zones at the same time. How, how useful would that be? Somebody should really invent one of those. Yeah, I think that'd be very useful. Multiple times on the same watch. Who was it? I think, I think it was Lon Jeans. I met with their CEO last week and he was talking to me about how in, it was like the 20s, had the first GMT watch and that very few people know about this. And he was telling me how this originated because in, I think it was the late 19th century or maybe the very early 20th century, Longines had been asked by the Ottoman Empire at the time to produce <laughs> a watch that could simultaneously tell what was then the sort of standard civil time in Western Europe. And in Turkey, apparently they still use this daytime based upon the, the, the hours uh, during the day of the sun. So it had to be adjusted every day. So they made this strange pocket watch that had two time zones on it because there was like literally two different ways to telling the time. And that evolved later into the GMT watch as we know it, according to Longines. So a little fun story there. Cool. So did you ask him my question then from last week? How it felt to be the little brother to Omega, despite the fact they've got all this history, as you've just demonstrated by their first GMT oh, watch. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's funny. There's a there's more camaraderie within the Swatch group because as people know, Longines and Omega are both part of the Swatch group, but it is really um, actually more of a friendly type of thing. I think at some other groups, it's a little bit more competition. They have their lane and look, oh, you know, Longines is a primarily $2,000 to $5,000 watch. That's a little bit below where Omega is. So they, they try to do their best. What we need to remember as enthusiasts is to, despite the fact that we sometimes, you know, lift our nose and scoff, oh, it's, it's only $2,000 uh, <laughs> to the mainstream, to 99% of watch buyers out there, you know, a few thousand dollars, $4,000 for a watch is a considerable expense. So market size Longines is massive, just like uh, Omega. And I think that, you know, now they have a new CEO who's been there since 2020, right before the pandemic, he started, of course, he had all these plans. And before that, they had Walter Von Connell, who was a great CEO, but he had been there for like over 40 years. So there's a, an opportunity now to adjust. So expect some interesting uh, Longines related news later uh, in March. Cool. And uh, obviously Longines, uh, stable brother Omega is going to get a 
shed load of coverage on today's show because they have dropped a whole load of new releases. But why don't you just quickly tell us about where you are and what you've been doing? I'm actually right now overlooking the French Alps. I am in Megève and I'm actually seeing people hand gliding or, uh, <laughs> you know, on those like semi-parachutes down the mountain. It's really lovely. Before there were some hot air balloons. So I have a very luxurious experience right now with just my view in front of my, my computer desk. I am not home, of, of course, traveling. This has been an opportunity to see an amazing array of Louis Vuitton's new products, as well as some of their existing collection of what they call high watchmaking. I, I think there's a lot of stories to be told there that we'll try to do over the next couple of months. But in, you know, to, to sort of sum it up, there's a facility in Switzerland in Geneva called La Fabrique du Temps and it is owned by Louis Vuitton and it's their watchmaking facility and yes Louis Vuitton has had some more entry level sort of quartz watches mainly for women some for men their mechanical watches really start to go up and up and up in complexity and exclusivity they produce something like five or six different tourbillon movements right now alone it's not a huge production each year only Louis Vuitton stores and not all of them of course are where you can even find these watches and a lot of their more exclusive luxuries are really only sold privately to clients, very similar to how maybe you would see it from a Cartier or Van Cleef and Arpels where most of their really elegant, elaborate things really never hit the showroom. So it's really interesting to get a little bit behind the scenes, you know, talking to this, you know, mega brand, I mean, truly mm -hmm. mega luxury brand, which is Louis Vuitton, but the watchmaking sign, which is, you know, very, very special and dear to them is extremely niche by comparison. So it, it's, it's been a very interesting journey, validated a lot of what I already know about it. And I think that if you are in the market for an interesting high-end tourbillon, the fashion angle, I think is actually valuable as opposed to maybe something uh, to turn off men because more people know about this product, there's legitimacy, um, and they do crazy stuff. I mean, they have really unbelievable tourbillons, central tourbillons, flying tourbillons, tourbillons with other complications. Truly impressive stuff, so I've got a lot of that on my mind. One new watch from Louis Vuitton that we debuted today on a blog to watch not a tourbillon, is the Tampur Spin Time Air Quantum. This watch is going to cause a lot of conversation because it has batteries. It's a mechanical watch, mm. it has batteries. Around the periphery of the dial is an electronic light system that uses two batteries that you can replace to light up each of the 12 spinning cubes. And so if you know a Spin Time Air watch, the cubes appear to be floating as opposed to in the little um, windows as in the normal spin time. If you know how this watch works, it's very cool. These cubes turn to indicate the current hour and then they turn back and there's a central uh, minute hand and now the cubes light up so there's these lights that point to the side lights up the watch itself is in this very hip black and yellow colors i always feel very validated because i always talked about how black and yellow is a great color theme for watches black dlc coated titanium case very youthful looking very cool $93,000. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really cool right up to the point that tells you what the price is. I mean, clearly there's quite a lot of watchmaking involved in this and you're clearly paying quite a lot for the exclusivity and the route through which you have to be able to buy one of these. I imagine you need to know someone to be able to get yourself, to be able to get your hands on, on one of these. Yeah, it, you, you can't, you know, you can't buy it on their website. A lot of these watches are not even mentioned on their website. Many are, yeah. but a lot of these watches that I've seen, especially ones with jewels and things all over them. I mean, you know, really not the type of thing that they put. Can't get pricing. The best you can do sometimes is go on their website and then indicate that you're interested in one of the watches. And maybe if you're lucky, somebody will get back to you. In fact, Louis Vuitton has what they call these private VIP events where they have, you know, good customers and they invite them 
to view things before anyone else gets to see it. And apparently with the volumes they have, and of course the name recognition of Louis Vuitton, that in and of itself is a pretty successful strategy for selling most of what they got. So we'll review that in some more detail possibly next week along with anything else that gets released from them. But this week has been a week dominated obviously by more events in Ukraine. We touched on it last week in terms of what was the watch world's reaction going to be. We've seen big brands from all over the globe. People out of Russia, we've had the likes of Ikea, Unilever, Canada Goose, McDonald's, I think Starbucks as well, also big accounting firms have pulled out PepsiCo and the likes of Netflix and Disney. I think Google and eBay have all changed their policies and we've also seen it amongst all the watch brands. Rolex have just announced in the last few hours that they are ceasing exports. We've had Swatch Group, LVMH, Richemont and Kering all suspending activities in Russia. So pretty much everyone who's everyone is out of the market. What's your thinking about what's going on and, and what chat was there or is there where you are at the moment being between Switzerland and France? Um... Look, I mean, I'm in Europe right now, which is a lot closer to the action than, of course, back in the United States. And it's definitely a topic which is on everybody's minds. The luxury industry is, for lack of a better term, the celebration industry. They like to be apolitical. They don't like to be controversial. They don't like to associate themselves with what they would be considered, you know, the wrong type of emotions for when it comes to to buying a watch. With that said, undeniably, they have to, you know, discuss what's going on, answer questions about it. I, I wouldn't say it's a huge topic. I think that collectively, everyone has a very big sort of humanitarian spirit, feels very, very bad. This was a part of the world where a lot of money went to watches. And in places like London and Geneva, I was in Geneva recently, there's this wonder, you know, where is the money going to come from in the city to buy a lot of the watches? You know, for a long time, it was Chinese that were coming. That ended, so Chinese money's gone. Russian money was very, very big. And now I think the hope is actually that um, clients from various parts of the Middle East will return and be um, a, a good source of, of revenue for, for luxury goods. So I think that the Swiss are understanding that they have a very limited effect on the overall conflict in politics. Like many companies, they're choosing to go ahead and you know you know cease operations permanently or temporarily in Russia, which is uh, which obviously common right now. But for a longer term uh, business analysis, they are definitely thinking about how that's all going to affect them. But at the same time, speaking to most brands, uh, while there are exceptions, most of them have a relatively little commercial stake in Russia. Of course, it represents a few percentage points of their business. But the the sentiment I'm getting from the big groups is that they've already diversified enough around Russia that it's not, at least in the immediate, a massive hit. Whereas a couple of years ago, things related to tax changes and duties changes with China had a much bigger effect on the bottom line almost immediately. Well, as ever, if you're looking to help, there are plenty of watch brands and associated people uh, able to help and send money to uh, aid relief in Ukraine. Yeah, there, there's look, there's a couple of brands making, you know, watches that have, you know, the colors of the Ukrainian flag, lovely blue and yellow, saying that they're raising money for charity. Look, it's hard not to see it as a flagrant opportunity to get press and media attention during uh, a massive conflict. I don't know that the right message is buy something because that'll help. 
it does sort of go to how they normally operate. Oh, let's make a watch and sell it and give the proceeds to charity. It's 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 very much on the self-serving side. So I, I think that they mean well. But from a PR perspective, I worry if telling somebody to to potentially spend a lot of money on an auction piece in the current context is is the is exactly the right message. I don't always know how I feel about it because again, yeah. you have to ask yourself, are these companies primarily interested in actually helping to resolve a conflict or are they just banking on sentiment and, and hoping to get a little bit of PR, potentially some sales. So I, I think that that always sort of comes through. And as someone who understands the world of marketing, you know, it's 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 easy to see that they have multiple incentives. Obviously, there are the non-governmental organizations. We would always encourage you if you want to get involved, the Red Cross, uh, etc. is an obvious place to go. So uh, with all that said, it is on with the show. So we would normally like spin a wheel, do a digital to choose a story, but pretty much everything this week is Omega, so we're not going to bother. So let's start with our first batch of Omega coverage, which is, Ariel, give us a general impression as to to what extent our Omega following trend versus Omega following what Rolex did last year because there's been one or two memes on the internet and I've sent you an image of one which compares the current lineup of Omega Steel Sports with the current lineup of Rolex Steel Sports and there's more than a passing similarity but is it just that all roads lead to the same destination or have Omega gone well wait a minute we produce more we've can sell these and this is trendy so let's copy what the most successful watch company in the world is doing look i think that it's you bring up a very good point and in this space we put a very high value when we call originality the idea that from an artistic perspective when you spend money on a luxury object you like the idea that it was designed to be original and it has its own character and it's not trying to emulate the desirability of something else that maybe you want even more and when i look at omega i like the things which are distinctively omega and it is a common strategy at Omega and elsewhere to, to follow trends. We have a popular watch, but there's a trendy color. Let's do it in those colors. So yes, Omega has definitely been looking at popular color choices and themes from Rolex and producing their own version of it. I think in Omega's mind, it's it's a little bit different. You know, they're not sitting there laughing like, oh, let's copy Rolex. I think that they're very interested in selling watches. Selling a gold Speedmaster has never been an easy thing to do. Getting people excited about some of these new things has never been per se easy to do. And Omega doesn't want to wait for five or six years for someone to be like, oh, uh, a maroon color dial is great. Why didn't I notice it? When a color comes out and it's immediately familiar, the tendency is for consumers to I guess you could say just be a little bit more accepting to it. I do think that Omega was a little bit overt. It wasn't just they had one or two watches that, you know, more or less emulated the popular colors that you might have seen from Rolex. It was, it's a lot. So, you know, it would be an absolute <laughs> lie to say that Omega isn't directly inspired by the popular colors of Rolex watches. But you have to think about from their perspective, someone wants to get the Rolex Oyster Perpetual, let's say with, you know, the blue color dial and they can't get it. But Omega has what appears on the outside to be an equivalent model, and at least for the most part, the Omega watches are available. So I think the strategy is you want that Rolex, but you can't get it. Oh, look, Omega, which is another great, highly respectable brand that makes a good product, has something with that trendy color 
that I want. And so I think that, you know, on a very basic level, that's really what the strategy is. It will be successful for them, but I agree that Omega at the same time needs to offer a little bit more originality. Look, Rolex is the company to beat. It's not easy to beat, but they are the company to beat. And the Swatch Group is a manufacturing company. They're not a creative direction company. They're really a manufacturing company. And the way they're set up from a factory mindset is we want to put our resources into products that the market wants and the market uh, will, will buy. So their current strategy is to continue to refine their you know, existing collection of products, you know, the Spe Speedmaster and Seamaster and all the permutations thereof, while trying to also make them more trendy. It's impossible to keep redesigning these things and Omega doesn't want to create a brand new product line because that'll take five to ten years to get popular. So if you do just sort of a basic business analysis, what they are doing is the, at least on paper, lowest risk way of getting the fastest sell through. Yeah, so basically f introduction of four new ranges within existing lines, there was the colourful Aquateras, the moon watches that appear in different varieties of gold, a new generation of the Speedmaster 57s, but this time with a manual movement available in lots of colourways, and probably my favourite introduction, which is the new Planet Ocean Seamasters with what they're calling, and it's always in caps, so I don't know if that means I need to shout it, <laughs> which is Omega Steel. I, I don't know which marketing genius sat down and said, oh, I know what we'll do, we'll just call it Omega Steel, but we'll do it all in caps because that tells everybody something. I'm not sure whether they just need to do that because they can trademark it now <laughs> uh, in some sort of way. But Rolex literally calls their stuff Rolex Steel. Yes, you know, a good point. It used to be 904L and then they called it you know, Oyster Steel or something like that. Again, it, you, you really just have marketing people saying, let's, let's do our version of what Rolex does. It's not particularly creative. There's no originality, but you know it, your boss isn't going to admonish you for doing so, and and that's the sort of risk-averse climate that that we live in right now. So let's uh, deal with these very quickly on their own merits. The new Aquaterra collection in the colours, obviously going hard up against the Rolex Ice Perpetuals uh, that were released some time ago in the colours. But which is the better watch? in your opinion. Uh, forget about brand, price, all the rest of it. As a standalone feat of engineering, what's actually better? It's very difficult to say. You know, I, I don't I don't think that you can sell a watch like this purely based on the technical merits because there's technical merits that no human being will ever need. You know, you're talking about let's say the Seamaster, you know, ultra deep, water is this in the six thousand meters. This is obviously <laughs> Omega's, you know, answer to um you know, the, the Rolex Sea Dweller Deep Sea, uh, you know, Ultra Deep, Deep Sea. I mean, it's, it is a process in saying, you know, oh, me too. We have one as well. We have this, you know, Rolex has this, we have this. I don't know that you could really do a deep analysis on which is better. Omega does make a very good watch. Rolex makes a very good watch. Better means performance or construction quality or the design. It's, it's, it's very, very subjective. You're just talking about tool watches that will go places where you will die. And <laughs> it's just, it just really a matter of your physical anatomy. How big of a watch do you want? I mean, arguably, when Omega came out with the Ultra Deep, while there's sort of an emotional fun to it, it's a cool big watch, I'd wear it as well. 
there's no practical uh, solutions that it offers that haven't existed yet. No one's like, oh, finally, I have the watch that'll take me down to this depth. No human being ever goes to that depth. You can see on their testing, they put it on, you know, an arm of a robotic submersible vehicle to test it. It's not even worn by a human. Robots don't need to wear watches. So a lot of it is fun. It's kind of gimmicky. I, you know, I, there's, there's advantages, you know. I think that the, the magnetic resistance of a lot of the Omega watches is, yeah. is truly superior to some of the stuff that Rolex has. Rolex is very loath to try to put in new movements or new technology in a way that might invalidate their old watches. And Omega has no problem doing that, like none at all. Like they'll ha come out with a watch and they'll come out with something a year later that literally invalidates or makes something previously obsolete. They're completely okay with that. And I think that would be my big observation about the differences in these watches, which is actually, as you say, Omega are not afraid to actually go, right, here's a new range of watches. Yeah, it looks a bit like this other thing you've seen from our competitors, but actually the movement's better. It's uh, We talk about how anti-magnetic it is we talk about it as meta certified we're actually changing the generations of the movements quicker than our competitors are now perhaps your average purchaser has no particular care about that they're going to look in a window uh, it's going to have some Omega in it. It's going to have some Rolex in it. They're going to go in. They're going to see how it wears on the wrist. They're going to see if they like the color of it. And they're going to see if it's available for them to walk out the store that day and can they afford it. And in which case then the Aquaterra collection, there are some lovely colors. They're very different colors to what Rolex has. Rolex is very matte, I think, whereas this is much more... I don't know, shiny, I suppose, yeah, it's, and reflective. It's, 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 a, it's a galvanized metal look, a little bit more traditional watchmaking kind of thing. It's really just a matter of style. Look, Omega has come out with a lot of very commercially viable products. No watch yes. brand right now that I'm looking at is being very innovative in the creative department. A lot of people have their version of this, or I mixed my DNA with their DNA. You're going to see actually more of that in the coming weeks leading up to Watches and Wonders and then at Watches and Wonders. There's going to be cool stuff, but I don't think that 2022 is going to be the year for originality from the big groups. Okay, so the Aquaterra, we're saying it comes down to whether you like it, whether you like the particular colors, the price. It's obviously going to be highly available, you would assume, and the movement is particularly good maybe over its competitor. What do we think of the new Speedmaster 57s? I was always a big fan of this variety of Speedmaster. I really like these. I think this is a this is a home run. I'm although the fact that it's not automatic, I'm like that seems a bit odd to me. Omega always plays, you know, with various types of permutations. You know, they really like to they, they they really like to, you know, just play with things a lot to create differences. You know, the Speedmaster line arguably had a lot of overlapping choice. The reason to get this one versus that one was very, very minor. And Omega was correct in identifying that people had difficulty selecting a watch. That was, that was true. So I think that by taking the movement that they introduced in the chronoscope that we talked about on the watch watch several months ago that still sells, which is lovely, a little bit more of a classic dial with a sort of snailed scales on there. This takes the Speedmaster 57, puts that movement. When you wear it, you're going to see it's a little bit thinner, a little bit more elegant on the wrist. The Speedmaster 57 in its, in its previous shape was a little bit larger and, and, and maybe sharper, so to say. 
and so said some people looked. So I think what you're seeing here is Omega trying to best Rolex at what you might call the iterative approach, where you take the same thing and you make it better year after year. It's like the Submariner. It doesn't really change, but it gets better. Now, obviously, Rolex's changes are a lot more subtle. Omega is trying to be a little bit more, I guess you could say, prolific about it. They change a lot of things, even though it looks the same. And they're good at that. But you do have a lot of shuffling. It seems like the same cards in the deck. It's just shuffled a little bit differently. You know, you have a slightly different hand right now. But fundamentally, uh, we're all still playing the same game with these watches. And that's, again, that's enjoyable for people who have a huge appetite for Speedmaster. But what we find is the collectors... They like to, to shape their and move their attention around. Maybe they'll get a new Speedmaster every several years or something like that. But there's very few people that are just going out there and buying every new Speedmaster. So I think that Omega knows there's a huge awareness of the Speedmaster name and Seamaster for that matter. And they just try to make as many products available using that name as possible. And again, you and I can, can jest a little bit about how they will, you know, blatantly following the Rolex lead or, or coming out with a bunch of new watches that don't necessarily look new. But that's actually been mostly what the watch industry has done over the past 15 or 20 years. People like you and me have become quite spoiled on concept watches and crazy watches and things like that that make for good media. But commercially speaking, those don't move the needle as much as something that's as palatable as, as, as these new Speedmaster and Seamaster watches. Yeah, I think the Speedmaster 57 and the new range is particularly, as you say, elegant. And also Omega appear to have put some proper effort into the bracelet. There's micro-adjustment on the fly. The colour ranges are great. There's definitely improvement there. And the strap choices, particularly the, the this brown uh, leather that they've got going on does make it a very, with the kind of slightly faux patina uh, on the 57, does make it look a particularly elegant daytime general wearing watch that will just appeal to someone who has that kind of eight grand to spend, is is wealthy enough to spend that sort of money and just wants to buy one watch that they're just going to wear. They're not going to be a collector. They're, not gonna, they're just going to go in. They're going to see something. They're going to think that looks pretty classy. And that's what they're going to buy and end up with. And it's going to be perfectly satisfactory. I've had conversations with multiple brands in the Swatch Group. The product theory is is quite similar in each there's no revolutions. No one's coming out with like, oh my God, they did that. But from an engineering perspective, there's a lot to be impressed about. Good values, like you said, adding features that people want, slightly better dials, micro adjusts on the bracelets, you know, thinner cases. These are all these are all benefits. These are all upsides. So yes, we can joke about the copying, and Omega's not going to get any awards for originality these days, but from a commercial perspective, it seems to be the best that they can do with what they have right now. Next up was the two gold versions, uh, one of which looks extraordinarily like a particular Rolex Panda dial in gold. Uh, what do we think? These are traditional Speedmasters. I don't actually, off the top of my head, have these got the three, two, one movement in it or have these got the updated... Uh, Other members of the Ablar to Watch team, or Bilal was actually in Miami with Omega. He probably has the most up-to-date information. Uh, like I said, I'm traveling here in Switzerland. So um, we're going to have to wait a little bit before we have all the hands-on content to, to get that stuff. I do know that gold-cased Speedmasters are lovely, but a niche product for sure. That's not a huge seller for them. 
not a bad value actually. Like it's 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 good value for the money. You know, you're spending, I don't know, for a gold watch from Audemars Piguet, seventy, eighty thousand dollars. You know, Rolex is is pretty fairly priced actually for their gold watches in the scheme of things. Omega as well has an incentive to be priced um competitively, and you see them experimenting. They they mix you know, the copper gold alloy and stuff like that in order to make it cost a little bit less. So I actually think that I like gold watches and Omega would be a great place to look at if you're getting a gold watch. But I don't know that there's a there's a huge market right now for for gold Speedmasters. Again, it is a niche product for, for people that are into that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, they're very pretty expensive, but as you say, not perhaps expensive in the grand scheme of solid gold watches. Uh, they're certainly worth checking out and look forward to seeing you uh, hearing about Bilal and his experience with them. But one uh, article that was on the website that uh, Zach did was his review of the Ultra Deep. And I think this is... <sighs> This is where I think I actually see the full ultra deep on the brace. I'm a big fan of the the Rolex Deep Sea, the James Cameron. Uh, but as you say, you couldn't get one even if you wanted it. And I actually think uh, side to side, I think I now prefer this Omega. I think because I'm not bothered about the brand recognition or or whatever personally or resale value, they're actually. The 6,000 meters is really what I need in terms of water resistance rather than the paltry water resistance that the Omega Deep Sea gives you. So I'm fancying one of these now on my list of must-haves versus the Deep Sea. I think this will prove to be actually quite a popular watch. I'm not sure how many people are going to be able to pull off wearing it. I don't know if I could. I've got reasonable risks, but this is going to be a chunky watch. I'm a bit disappointed that titanium doesn't also come with a titanium bracelet option, because that I would really like, because it would be lighter, but I would prefer to wear this on a bracelet, so the steel is the option. I, I assume with your travelling you've not had a chance to see any of these in the flesh as yet, but what do you think of them as a as a concept, as a direction that Omega have gone in. No one likes big, burly dive watches more than me. You know, it's something I like. <laughs> I routinely wear large dive watches I have for a long time. So I'm like you. I'm definitely the type of person that looks at this and is like, that's pretty cool. I'd wear that. You know, it's a lot of bragging rights. Do you want to have the biggest and baddest? Oh, you only have the 500 meter water resistant Planet Ocean? <laughs> Pfft. You know, what's wrong with you? You didn't want to spend the extra 5,000 bucks? You know, it, it, it's... It really doesn't come down to practical. It's, this is an emotional item. There's a lot of stories about engineering, this imagination of diving down deep. But I have so many dive watches. There's so many out there. The proportions are a bit expanded for the, the planet ocean in general. So yeah, if this if you're the type of guy who says this is the type of proportions that works best on my anatomy, it's not a cheap watch, but go out and get it. You know, if you want a super dive, water-resistant dive watch, you don't need to spend anywhere near this. But Omega is definitely going for a luxury play. So again, there are some drawbacks to this. Like you said, you know, it's it's not maybe as lightweight as it could be. It is definitely competing with Rolex in pricing. It's, you know, $11,200 for the steel version on the strap, the Titanium one goes up another over a thousand dollars more from that. It's over twelve thousand dollars, and this is territory that the the planet ocean has traditionally not really played in. Will there be collectors that will gobble this up? Sure. There's you know uh, I think five different dial references that they came out with. Mm. Omega just likes to see what works. You know I've seen these same color schemes in other planet ocean watches or the Ploprof, for example, which is which is another 
you know, that's my favorite Omega Crazy Divers watch. Why was that not the subject of something for crazy deep diving? You know, what, what, literally, I've, I haven't mentioned, seen anyone use the word Ploprof in any of this stuff. So no one's comparing it. And that has been a cool watch, but probably what I would opt for if I wanted a big, massive Omega dive watch. So it's it's kind of interesting how Omega literally competes with their own product in this way. And maybe they have the history. The Ploprof represents the history of crazy deep diving. This represents modern times of ultra deep diving. But, you know, even in their own materials and records, you can see uh, it, it's, it's really just about having, you know, more and more to offer. It, it, it's, it's not really a well-rounded product catalog because if you look at the product catalog, you have so many dive watches, Omega. I don't know which one to choose. And I think that type of choice paralysis is is a legitimate problem. Omega, of course, has to keep releasing new things, but you know, putting myself in the shoes of the consumer, it is a little bit frustrating because I can see people being very, very torn between buying, you know, basically even from the same brand, similar watches. So I, I, I'd like to see what people have to think about that and what their feelings are. Well, that's interesting you talk about choice paralysis because that allows me to segue to your most recent superlative release uh, where you actually touched on uh, quite a bit of discussion about choice paralysis and just the amount of product that's being released. Do you want to just quickly tell us about that interview and then we shall move on to speaking about something that's not Omega? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, again, I really appreciate um, all the all the people that, that join me, you know, on the Superlative Podcast show. There's, you know, there's just really a lot of things there that, you know, that there's always new watches and things like that. So I, I, I recommend anyone go to look at that, um, which is out there. But I do encourage everyone to go listen to the latest episodes um, of the Superlative Podcast. Uh, yeah, so go and check out the Superlative. But what I think you should actually do, all dear listeners, is interview was with Viren Time and their owner. I think you should very specifically go to the Viren Time Instagram account and look at the photo of Ariel that they posted in it, which was clearly taken from his James Bond phase. <laughs> clearly been in a tanning salon immediately before this photo. He's been well coiffured and has his Rolex or his Omega James Bond 007 watch on because <laughs> this is this is this looks like you're giving a TED talk somewhere. <laughs> This uh, is your TED Talk I, picture. I was speaking in front of a live audience, that's true. So it's a, it's a classic Ariel shot, so go and check out that and the Superlative Podcast. We recently published an article on an interesting watch called the Frederick Constant Slimline Monolithic Manufacturer. Um, this watch came out, I think, in 2021. I finally had a chance to play with it. This is sort of the best and the worst of Frederick Constant at the same time. And when I say... The worst, what I'm saying is kind of a confused product strategy that takes a, a really cool innovation and hides it in a watch that you would never expect to have such innovation. Watch brands are routinely guilty of this, where they're like very shy about new things. And so they'll add a new technology into sort of an existing design and then hope that the world goes crazy for it. So what we have here, which is actually more exciting than the first watch it was included in, is a new type of regulation system that uses a one piece, i.e. monolithic piece of silicon that is cut in a very special way and silicon bends. And this wafer, which is cut of silicon, has a bunch of systems in it and allows it to operate at a frequency of 40 hertz uh, compared to maybe four hertz of a, of a 
standard mechanical watch with actually less power. So impulses from the mainspring are only, only require tiny amounts of power and they allow for this predictable vibration effect that happens very rapidly, allowing it to operate at 40 hertz because of this novel regulation system and it's been tested. Apparently it works quite well. What, what do you get with, with 40 hertz uh, frequency? And, and again, the funny thing is the brands don't even mention performance results. So they talk about this technology without really talking about what it means to you. And it, was sort, it would sort of be like a car company discussing a brand new engine they have without discussing how it has advantages over maybe any other engine that they may have had. And that's what happens in the watch industry all the time. So in theory, you have the ability to have something which is far more accurate as well as accurate over time, meaning it loses less time or loses less rate as the mainspring winds down. There's more isochronism, if you, if you will. And you know, for people who like accuracy, which is a lot of people, this is exciting. It, it has a, a real high technology feel. The small opening over six o'clock on the dial does have movement to it, but you need to look very carefully because, you know, four hertz is a speed that the human eye can see. 40 hertz happening much faster really is something that's difficult for the human eye to see, which is ironic because slow beat movements like two and a half hertz have become increasingly popular because the human eye likes to look at them, even though it's a step backwards in things like you know accuracy and, and stuff like that. So it's again, there's arguments you can be made in either way about regulation stuff like that. For the most part, the higher the frequency, the more accurate it's going to be. And, and we're talking about you know 28,800 beats per an hour for a four hertz. Uh, you know 288,000 beats per hour with with 40 hertz. But then again, you know Frederic Constant hides it in one of their classic looking watches. They're, they're priced not in, in, in a crazy way at all, uh, about 5,000 bucks for the two versions that are in steel, they're limited editions. There's an 18 karat rose gold one, which is I think maybe about double that price. So actually pretty de decent value for a gold watch. Uh, again, it's similar to the problem that a lot of Japanese watches have is they'll include this amazing technology, but they'll, they'll, they'll suffer a little bit when it comes to explaining to people why you might want that. So I think that there's a lot of, of things that Frederic Constant can do, but with a case design like this, which is lovely, just maybe not appropriate for this movement, and a name like monolithic manufacturer. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that anyone gets excited about a monolithic manufacturer. You can see that the marketing department uh, still has a lot of catch-up play to do. Zenith tried this with the inventor, a similar technology, which then disappeared and has never been spoken of again by Zenith and LVMH Group. You can't even find it on their website anymore. They released it and then obviously it wasn't working properly and they withdrew it. Frederick Constant have clearly managed to get a similar sort of idea to work. I don't know whether part of the reason they've got it to work is because they've made it much smaller Whereas the Zenith Inventor version of this kind of idea, the silicon wafer took up the whole dial space uh, and was part of the attraction. But what I don't get about the Frederick Constant is, as you say, this is kind of space-age technology, but in an 18th century looking, you know, wristwatch. You know, it looks like it could be a, it looks like it could be in a pocket watch that's just been strapped to the wrist and scaled down. And Frederick Constant, owned by Citizen Group, I don't think really have a case shape of an existing range that actually you would consider to be there space age bleeding edge technology thing. I'm curious as to why Citizen Group didn't nab this 
technology for something in a citizen. Uh, they, they could not. This was actually developed uh, through all the Dutch connections. Frederick Constant was started by a Dutch person. Their lead uh, technical person is a Dutch watchmaker. And the company that produces the silicon parts are in the Netherlands. So I, I you know, I think that it's it's a very European technology. And I think that, you know, Frederick Constant obviously uh, would fight to keep it theirs. They just clearly aren't sure what to do with it yet. Yeah, so I mean, it's great technology. You're right. They don't shout about it. They should be shouting about it. And they need to design a watch look specifically around it so that it can be appreciated bring out a dive watch looking thing or a more of a casual dress watch a royal oak type shape like everybody else is doing and put this at it uh, yeah. would look great I just don't understand why they've chosen I mean they've chosen this because it's safe because as you say they can hide the new technology in a watch that they know sells and just try it out and if it's a disaster then they don't end up with a, a Zenith issue or a Tag Heuer isograph type problem not a good market test you know what I mean it, they think it is anyways it's cool watch monolithic manufacturer from Frederick Constant check it out probably more of that coming soon because I've ruined it every time I've done it by introducing, we instead have a mystery guest. So we're going to introduce the mystery guest now and then talk about the watch they've just released. So here we go. We have our mystery guest this week. Mr. Guest, who are you and where are you from? I'm Mike Franz. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Christopher Ward. Excellent. How are you, Mike? Are you well? I'm extremely well, thank you. And thanks for inviting me on. No problem. Thank you for doing our who, what, why, where, when. So you've done the who. What is it that you're releasing what is it that we've covered on a blog to watch this week that you're going to tell us a bit more about? We're going to talk about the C63 Colchester. What is this specific release for? What's the market that you're serving with this particular release? This is one of the watches in our Ministry of Defence collection, but it's for the wider general public, those people who are um, interested in, in action watches because it's based on the, um, the paratroop regiment of the British Army. It's very much associated with, with the paratroopers, one of the crack troops of, of the British Army. And why is this the particular focus just now? for the brand was there a particular reason why you wanted to do this watch right now we released it a little while ago at the back end of last year it was the latest in our ministry of defense collection we're one of just five brands worldwide who are licensed to create watches that carry the insignia of uh, her majesty's armed forces which we're very proud to do of course having a year ago uh, introduced the limston which is devoted to the royal marines didn't want to upset the army so we um <laughs> we brought in the colchester to appeal them but uh, having worked with them uh, I think we've created uh, rather a special uh, timepiece actually. So how are you going to satisfy the Air Force when they come knocking? Uh, that's for me to know and for you to ask the question but I can't tell you just yet. <laughs> oh so th th there might be a follow-up to this particular interview then at some stage in the near future that's good we're, to hear. We're probably nothing if not predictable yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where can we find this just now and how much is it? Uh, you can find it at christopherward.com we only retail through our own um, our own website. In pound sterling uh, it's 9.95 and dollars 11.30 and the euro is 11.85. And I think you've already answered the question but when will it be released it's now on sale and it's uh, it's uh, when it went on sale it was a sellout extremely quickly and it's just come back into stock so um, now is a very good time to um, to go and have a look at the C63 Colchester on our site great stuff thank you for doing our who what why where when what else is happening just before we finish where's Christopher Ward going for the rest of the year obviously you've revealed exclusively that there's an Air Force watch on its way <laughs> uh, what else what else can we expect that, that may not be this year though but, um, all right 
Okay. All right, right, right. Okay. Let you off. There's a very, very big collection being launched at the end of April. Excellent. Which, um, I will uh, tell you is called the Aquitaine Collection. I think it's going to be a, a really big platform for us. So uh, we're very excited by that. So three watches in the collection will be launched. Three different complications launched at the end of April. And the Aquitaine Collection, is this you finally going with your surname and releasing something related to the French? If I'd thought about that, that would have been a really good thing to do, wouldn't it? But no, it's, <laughs> the marketing team will kill me if I give too much away about it. But there is, a, there, is a, there is a good rationale for the name and it's nothing to do with my surname, no. <laughs> okay, so there's no because Aquitaine's Bordeaux, so there's no Bordeaux wine connection. Ah, well, there's always a there's always a good Bordeaux wine connection, but nothing to <laughs> nothing to do with selling watches. <laughs> well, maybe that's inspiration for your new packaging, your recycled bottle packaging. You could all drink the wine and then ship the watches wrapped around a bottle. You're on. That sounds like a great idea. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. This is the first time I've been on um, a blog to watch. I'm very excited to be uh, invited on, and thank you for that. Really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll get you back for a much longer and more detailed chat when the Aquitaine uh, is released. So thank you very much for joining us. That's great. Okay, so as you all now know, our Mr. Guest was Mike France, the CEO of Christopher Ward, and they had a new release in the past week that was reported on the website, and this was the C63 Colchester watch in carbon. I am a big Christopher Ward fan. And fundamentally, I think, comes down to the fact that I'm a bit of a cheapskate. And whether it works in their favour or works against them, there are very few watches from the big manufacturers that you can't find an equivalent that is, you know, as well manufactured, okay? It may not be quite as pretty and polished and hand-finished and all the rest of it, but there's a kind of equivalent within a Christopher Ward and it's not expensive because they have this kind of three times, you know, they have this price cap that they won't overcharge. You know, they multiply their costs uh, or manufacture by three and that's what they sell it for. They don't have this big infrastructure. And I quite like this C63 Colchester that they have produced. What do you think? Ariel. I actually heard from Mike that it was, what well, he said on the thing, it was his first time he'd ever been on a blog to watch. So is it just not a watch brand that has come across? Uh, well, that's funny because I've met with Mike France four or five times in the past, <laughs> <laughs> Inclu- including in London. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> um, I, you know, I have a lot to say on, on it. I think that it's um, a very proud, you know, you know, UK native brand that's done a lot of good things. There's a lot to say about it. You know, Christopher Ward himself um, isn't actually part of the brand anymore. Mike France nope. was in it from the beginning. They are a rare example of a watch brand that really was just trying to sort of meet consumer demand that actually kept growing and growing and growing and then had the opportunity to do things that they may, maybe never were able to do. So the theme is sort of still the same. You like this other brand's more expensive of, of this thing. We've brought some of the same themes and materials and technology and done it ourselves in a different form. And like you said, someone who likes the idea of the more expensive one, but can't necessarily afford it, is very keen to go ahead and, and maybe invest in something like this. So I think that 
there's a lot to, to like about these, you know, and, and it's a brand that I haven't actually seen a lot of their recent stuff. So I definitely just sort of become reacquainted with this, but you can't deny that um, they're just definitely doing something right. But what I would like to see from them is, you know, like I said, more brand building, uh, more originality, and not just sort of like what we're talking about Omega's doing, looking around them um, as opposed to looking internally and saying, what is it that we want to do? Speaking offline to Mike, he was definitely expressing that America is very much now their boom market. Uh, they're very used to advertising, and they advertise, in fact, on the television in the UK. Uh, so they're very much yeah. a UK-based yeah. uh, watch brand, but they're now seeing, I think, exponential growth overseas yeah. and particularly in the United States. And I think the way they interact with the people that buy them, they have this forum that's run by them or owned by them, but they don't editorialize <laughs> it or anything. So they, they genuinely do get close to the customer. And they've obviously been criticized a lot over the years about their logos and all the rest of it. And they take that uh, on the chin. There are, I mean, probably I don't like using the word disruptor. But genuinely, they probably are the closest in terms of a big brand because they now are a big brand. They, they, they force they force other brands to reevaluate their business yeah. models and things like that, and that's that's always a good thing. So I'll probably get a good chance to um, get reacquainted with them. But like I said, I was with them there, you know, close to their beginning. Yeah. So do check out that article and do check out the the rest of the watch of Christopher Ward. There, there. I like to say there's something there for everybody, and I'm not sponsored by Christopher Ward or anything. Although feel free to. <laughs> no, you're you're. You're someone that lives in the UK that was, you know, very legitimately romanced by them. You're a product of the effect of their marketing in your region. So it's... it's exactly. Yeah. I, I have been influenced by them. Yeah. So there you go. So yeah, check that out. So that is it for today's show. Lots coming up. We are preparing for the Armageddon of watches and wonders. <laughs> Anything you want to say? Are you getting any, any secret messages? I'm, I'm getting a lot of stuff. All I can encourage everyone to to do is continue to follow along with what we're doing over the next couple of weeks over the next couple of months a blog to watch is really going to be giving you a lot of stories and hands-on coverage that no one else is going to be able to do and also is going to be shining light on brands that you may have not been thinking about but you probably will want to after we've yes. told you some of the interesting details and stories about them so richard thank you so much for another great show um, everyone please go to blog to watch and check out our latest articles and we'll talk to you soon excellent goodbye folks